This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Lance Samantha Chang, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. I am in love with the family chow. I hope you had as much fun writing this book as I had reading it. Yeah, it was it was a blast to write. I think it was sort of like a way that I had to get over how busy my life was when I had the book. I thought, I'm going to write something entertaining, something that I enjoy. And you deliver. You totally deliver. So we've got three brothers. We've got their mom and their dad and a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant. In Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So how did we get here? The novel started more than 15 years ago. I was teaching at Harvard, and I had a student who had read Russian literature, and he was a Russian literature major, and he just adored this book, The Brothers Karamazov. And I thought, how embarrassing. I have not read this book, and I'm supposed to be his teacher. And so I started, you know, furtively reading the book, thinking, this is going to be a real drag, but I'll get through it. And then I was just hooked because it's an incredibly great book. I mean, it's funny. It's complicated. There's a plot of, you know, three brothers and their tyrannical father and uh, their buffoonish, charismatic, but very difficult father. I love the books so much that I thought, I've got to talk to somebody about this. But of course, you know, there aren't that many people who've actually read it and feel up to date on it and can actually talk about it. So I sort of formed my own book club. I told my students, anyone who signs this paper is vowing that they're going to read The Brothers Karamazov, and then we're going to meet and we're going to discuss this book. You get no credit, but we're just going to have these conversations because, you know, after you finish something you think is really amazing, the real thing you want to do is talk to somebody about it. Ten students signed up. And so I find myself surrounded by these lovely, smart people who've put time into reading this book of many hundreds of pages that was written in the late 19th century by in Russian with a lot of long names. And and, uh, I just um, had a really fabulous time. So I did it again. A couple years later, I, I had students talk to me about the book again. And the book was sort of infused into my biological system somehow. And then this thing happened where I, at some point, realized that it would be really cool to write an homage to this book. But instead of having the characters in Russia, I wanted to write about a town like the town where I grew up in Wisconsin. And I wanted to set up a community of Chinese-American immigrants, similar to some of the immigrants I knew after I was of a certain age in Wisconsin. As a family, we integrated our town of Appleton, Wisconsin. We were the first Chinese-American family to move there, and we were the only kids in school. Me and my, my three sisters were the only kids in school who were Chinese, but eventually more Chinese families moved in. Some of them were, their parents were working at the paper company as engineers and things, and we started a community. And so I, I decided I was going to set my story in a fantasy Midwestern Chinese community And it turned out to be the most fun I've ever had writing a book. I think because my job at that point was so overwhelming and I also had a child and I needed something to distract me. I needed something to just get me to really love writing again, you know, love thinking about writing. I didn't want to be thinking about all the rules that I had been brought up learning as a writer. And there was just something really pleasurable about writing the story about, you know, at its center a 
very difficult, tyrannical, complex father figure and his three sons and the sort of legacy that they have to cope with while they're following in his footsteps. There's Dago, who's the oldest. There's Ming, who's the middle child who has left for New York. And then there's James. And James is back from college. Everyone's home. You made me miss snow. You really made me miss snow in this oh, book. <laughs> After I read this book. Snow in this book. <laughs> I, mean, I just have been surrounded by snow for large amounts of my life. But Dago is working most closely with dad, Leo. Yeah. In the restaurant. Yeah. And he feels like promises have been made and dad is not going to honor anything remotely resembling a promise about partnership or anything else. Right. Dago is this character who he leaves home to go to college and he thinks he's going to start his independent life as a musician up there on the East Coast. But then his mother gets a little sick and he has to come home and fill in for her. And the next thing he knows, he's sort of back at home and he's the loser child. He's the child who failed to launch. He's the child that, you know, the community looks around and says, oh, isn't it nice that he's there helping his father out at the restaurant? And after about six years of this, for various reasons, Dago decides, no, I want to be a partner. I want to, I want to stake in this restaurant. If I'm going to live here, I want to be a big fish in a small pond. That's what I want. And his dad, Leo, refuses to play because Leo is a very singular person, a larger-than-life dad figure, and he is very domineering, and he likes being the family tyrant, and he does not want to be in an equal partnership with his oldest son. He wants, as Dago says, to keep me around like a dog he can kick around. <laughs> so he gets very angry, and that's essentially the conflict that starts off this whole thing. Dago's request of his father that he be a partner, and his father saying no. No, you actually owe me money. For rent, for staying in right. the apartment above the restaurant. Right. For eating at the restaurant. Oh, there's that too. So Ming comes home. He is very much a middle child. Yes. But he seems to wrestle more with this idea of being Chinese American or even Chinese than either of his brothers. I mean, Dago's just, I'm Dago, here I am. I have yes. a pirate radio station. I like my life, but I want more. Yes. Ming is wrestling with everything. Ming has got major identity issues. Ming is suffering, first of all, from not being the oldest son. He's just outraged at his brother. He feels like his brother is screwing things up and that he could have been so much better. But in fact, he's a middle son. And so he leaves home to seek his fortune. And he makes a lot of money. Ming is a success. He does really well. He goes to a fancy school. He goes to New York City and He's got this goal of making a ton of money, and he thinks that if only I could make all of this money, all of the problems that I've suffered from my whole life, my insecurity about being second, growing up as a minority in a very homogeneous town in the Midwest, all of it will be gone. I will be fine because I'll never have to worry about anything or suffer or have issues if I have enough money. He literally says this. He is a huge diatribe in the book where he just describes like all of his issues. And then he's like, but I can make money and then I'll be fine. And of course that's, you know, denial. He's in denial. Yeah. He ends up really not being fine, but we're going to let readers discover what happens there because we have little brother, James, baby of the family. He has no idea what he wants. 
James starts off in a really good spot. He's decided he's going to be a good boy, go to medical school, mm-hmm. and be a doctor. And he wants a small life. He wants to be small. He wants to be an ordinary person, have an ordinary family, an ordinary house, and a dog, and a job, and just be sort of like a cog in the big picture of life. You know, he's a really sort of lovely kid. I think in a way he suffered less from, you know, being traumatized by his father because not only does his father kind of like him, but he's had these two older brothers who've like looked out for him and kind of fussed over him his whole life. He's he's really an innocent. He's basically the character we follow throughout because he's discovering all of these things about his family that he had no idea existed now that he's older and he can see things. And he's also discovering things about himself that he didn't realize that maybe he's a little bit more a descendant of Leo Chow, his father, than he realized. And these are all things that sort of throw him off track. And he does do a bit of wandering in the book. None of the boys, even Ming with all of his money, is really model minority myth, which if you're Asian American, regardless of what your Asian is, the model minority myth will stalk you. And the boys really are not even thinking about it. They're just trying to live their lives. It's really refreshing. (laughs) I mean, Ming has put himself into a box saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But it's less about his identity as an Asian American as it is about just wanting to not be around his dad and wanting to have success and wanting the trappings though, and yet still wrestling with the idea that he is Chinese American. Ming doesn't want to be his dad. But I think all three of the brothers suffer from this vacuum of having grown up with this very powerful, very significant parent, and then going out into the world as an individual, which is what you do in the United States. You become an individual, and then you think, but who am I without that sort of parent? So Ming, in a way, is nothing like his father. He doesn't do manual labor, for example. He doesn't have his own business. He'd rather work for a corporation. He's living in a city and not in the Midwest. And he wears like fancy clothes. He has Ferragamo shoes. You know, he's actually Ming himself in some ways is more like his father than any of the other characters in the book. And what Ming suffers from that his father does not is this lack of self-confidence about his identity that is entirely related to his race. He actually wishes that he could just be white. And if he were white, he wouldn't be tortured. This is what he tells himself. So Ming falls in love with this woman, Catherine, who is possibly still attached to his older brother. (laughs) So the deal with Catherine is that she's possibly still in love with his older brother, Dago, because they've been together since college. And that's how Ming met her in the first place as his brother's girlfriend. So there's two strikes against Catherine for him. One is that she's his brother's girlfriend and possibly fiance, according to her definition. And also that she looks Chinese. And Ming has vowed in his desire to become part of the dominant culture that he's never going to date an Asian woman. He's just not going to do it. And yet he finds himself like deeply attached to this person who looks Asian and is actually culturally not Asian. I think he's totally in love with her. As the reader, I think he's totally in love with her and he's mad. He's just mad about it. But Ming's kind of mad about everything. Anger is his default emotion. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But 
all three of the brothers, and this is ultimately, for me as a reader, it was ultimately about the brothers and the sibling relationship, which you don't always get novels about siblings. If you're listening, there's a little bit of Cynthia Dupree Sweeney's The Nest in this familial relationship. Money is driving some of the boys' relationship, but it is also ultimately the sibling relationship. Dago is the oldest and he is trying to do his best, but wow, he's falling short and Ming is Ming. And here's James saying, hi. The novel is in some ways about the inheritance of the father. It's one of these kinds of novels, but the inheritance of the father is much more complex and thorny than simply money. First of all, they can't find the father's money. The father is one of these people who like secrets his money away and doesn't let even his wife know how much he's saved. But they know that he has a nest egg somewhere and that it's huge because he's so cheap. So there is some sort of discussion about money, about the father's money and what it means and who's going to have it in this novel and who deserves it. But I would say that the sibling relationship is really something that just grew up for me around the writing of it without me even thinking about it because I have three sisters. So I could kind of imagine myself into a story with three brothers. The brothers love each other a lot. I think that James loves his older brothers unconditionally and unthinkingly. Ming is very skeptical of Dago and criticizes him at length, but ultimately feels loyal to him. And that becomes clear, I think, as the book goes on. And Dago himself has this sort of feeling that he's the oldest, he's responsible, he is willing to help his brothers, and even in the end, I think, to sacrifice for them. I think Dago really steps into his role as the oldest Chinese boy in the family by ultimately making a sacrifice for his brothers. This book is also sweetly raunchy, (laughs) I have to say. (laughs) I mean, they're guys. It's sweet. (laughs) Yeah, they have their guy life. I mean, one of their big problems in the book is what do you do if you're trying to grow up as a somewhat reasonable, decent, sensitive man, but your father is a complete jerk? I mean, Leo is just a terrible bad example for any young man. And he just cannot keep his mouth shut, always says something kind of somewhat offensive. And he also does bad things, which they all begin to realize have really affected all of their lives. And so to grow up with a legacy like that is complex for each of them in a different way. They also realize that their mother has left their dad. She's decamped for a spiritual community. Mom has exiled herself to a nunnery. (laughs) Let's say she's escaped. Okay. Okay. She's escaped. But the boys, it really hits them when they realize that, wait a minute, mom's not putting up with this. Not anymore. Mm -hmm. For years, she stuck around. Then, you know, in a pattern that we can recognize, James left for college and Winnie left the house. She did, I guess you could say, a very American thing. Instead of going to sort of stay with one of them, she headed off to a a feminist community of Chinese women who exist in this town at a sort of a Buddhist nunnery. I mean, my grandmother was a devout Buddhist, and actually she, you know, she really wanted me to be a Buddhist as well. But she belonged to a very serious Miao, which is a temple where she would go and pray a lot. And she was very serious. But when I went to New York to do research for the book, I realized that a lot of temples are community centers. They're the place where people go and hang out or, 
you know, find friends or company. This particular one is started by a woman. She's the abbess. And she runs a place where basically you can go if you're a woman or identify as one. And a lot of the people who are there are people who just don't want to be in a male world. And Winnie has decided after, you know, how many years of marriage that she just wants out. She seeks tranquility. Tranquility is her mantra, really. And in the temple, they're also vegetarians. There's a lot of food in this book. There's yeah. a lot of food. <laughs> it really, if you're reading, make sure you have snacks at hand. <laughs> lots of snacks. Yeah, lots of snacks. Um, but I love the way you write about food. And I love the way you write about the brothers cooking. Because all three of them know how to cook, which is not an assumption I was making walking into this book because I mean, they've all gone off to other places. I mean, certainly Dago has come back and he's been there for six years. So Ming's pretty adept and James even, and okay, James is maybe taking orders more than he's cooking, but they've picked up a lot just by watching and being immersed in this restaurant. Yeah. Well, they grew up surrounded by cooking and they cook according to their personalities. Dago has this big, like, I'm an omnivore and I'm going to plan a giant omnivore party, which is really um, one of the significant scenes in the books takes place at this giant omnivore's party. And Ming is, is cooking primarily for personal reasons, but he's, he's quite good and he's smart. And James is just following orders and sort of trying to um, cook at the restaurant when other people can't do it. But sure, they grew up surrounded by food, as did I. You know, I grew up in a sort of test kitchen where my parents in Wisconsin were desperately trying to replicate their favorite foods from China in the middle of, you know, the mid American Midwest in the 1960s and 70s. When they first arrived in Wisconsin, they couldn't even find soy sauce in the grocery store. And there were no Chinese-style vegetables. There were stir-frying iceberg lettuce and trying to uh, make tofu from scratch. So, you know, there was a lot of that in my family, people trying new things in the kitchen and then us tasting them. My parents trying very hard to figure out what their new American friends would be willing to eat and interested in what they would like to eat and making lists and keeping track of, you know, what succeeded at the dinner party and what was a bomb. For example, fermented tofu is a bomb. <laughs> Actually, I loved I love fermented tofu. tofu. Bomb. Yeah. <laughs> no, tofu itself bombed, but they Americans, as my mother realized, liked big chunks of meat. <laughs> they liked anything quote unquote sweet and sour, which is something my mom had to figure out how to make. It was really interesting to grow up and be sort of raised by parents who were genu genuinely interested in food. And yet were constantly trying to improvise food. Well, and if you think of the difference too between American Chinese food and Chinese Chinese food, I feel it's like really I, different. Actually, yeah, it's really different. I feel like I'm actually an expert on knowing how Americanized food became that way. Okay, I watched it happening at home. Right, and that's a big part of the boys' culture, though. Oh, completely. Yeah. They're all immersed in, in this kind of food. Of course, Ming vows that he's not going to eat Chinese food. He actually ends up eating probably the most well-enjoyed meal of, of all the brothers at one point in the book. Everybody eats. And this is actually a part of my interest in the book, The Brothers Karamazov, in which, you know, there's a, there's a, in the first, I'd say, two-thirds of the book, 
you basically follow the James character, whose name is Alyosha. You follow him around this Russian town and you find out everything that he eats during that time. And I decided I would do the same. Of course, the meals are wildly different, but I was just going to keep track of everything that was consumed by James. At one point, his mother gives him a piece of a sesame candy. And then much later on in the book, he finds it in his pocket and eats it. I love those moments. I've read all of your books, The Story Collection, Hunger, and The Novel's Inheritance, and uh, All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost. This book is much more plot-driven than your earlier work. So what did you learn writing this book, balancing character and plot in a new way? That is such an interesting question. I mean, at the risk of sounding a little like fiction nerdy about it, I had a I had a draft of this that had blown up to 500 pages. And what it mostly was, was character stuff. And it was similar to the kind of characterization that I learned when I was learning to write. Take a character and describe their feelings and thoughts and you plunge into their past and talk about that a little bit. And then at some point, I, ha- I had a major realization that the book was out of shape. It had no shape. The plot was there. You know, the, the book is a very strong plot because anyone who's read The Brothers Karamazov will know the father does not come to a good end and then someone has to pay. <laughs> okay, so that's generally the plot. At one point, I realized I had 500 pages and that really in order to even see the plot, I had to trim away a ton of what I had. And that was fascinating to me. I think one of the reasons I was so interested in writing a book that was essentially plotted was that I was trying very hard to entertain myself, as I've mentioned, because my life contained overwhelming responsibilities. You know, I was responsible. I'm responsible to 100 emerging writers. I'm responsible to my husband and my daughter. I'm responsible to the university at large. And I just thought, I'm, I want to do something fun. And I also want to do something that people don't usually write at universities. I want to write a book that's lively and that has, you know, humor in it and a lot of dialogue and a storyline that moves along. And it was a real pleasure. And what I discovered is that, you know, the the model for this book is all of those things and was written in the late 19th century. This kind of work is very traditional in some ways, and yet people are nervous about doing it. This book has a big beating heart, though, and that's not always something that you can teach. I think it's true that there are things you can't teach in a in a creative writing program. You can work on technique or you can sort of describe what you think is good, but really ultimately the emotional content of a book, the the amount of largeness or love in a book is something that cannot be instructed into it. You just arrive with that or you don't have that. I I do feel with my other books that I love all of my books, you know, I'm proud of them all, but I do feel like I was on a quest as a writer for my work to get bigger. I just wanted it to be like to contain a larger portion of the world than it started off with. You know, at first I tried moving in time. I wrote a historical book and then I wrote a book from a really drastically different point of view. I wrote a book from the point of view of a, a young poet and then described his life. But in this book, I tried to make it large in its emotional scope, as well as in, you know, the amount of action that happens in it. Like there's a lot of dramatic action in the book that takes place. I think, too, one of the questions that you're asking 
is really important. And it's not something that stories about immigrant families often ask. And um, we're going to give up a tiny bit of information in that dad dies. And the question you're really asking is, are you still an immigrant if your immigrant parent died? And I can't think of a time where I've actually really had that question put in front of me by a novel. Right. You know, I think of this as a post-immigrant novel. Okay. There are a lot of novels right now that describe the immigrant experience. Typically, you know, one of the parents assimilates successfully and the other does not. Um, the child for a long time has to become the, the adult because the child learns English faster than the parent. And, you know, that's a kind of work that I, it's a story. It's an American story. And I think it's going to be around forever. And that's great. I am writing about something entirely different, which is, okay, all of that is over. It's already happened. Everybody's sort of moved on in their life. The parents have started a business and they've, they've done okay with it. And, you know, decades have passed. What becomes of the children? You know, what do they retain from their parents? What metabolic memory of this transplantation from another country to this country do the children carry with them into their adult lives away from this seminal incident of the parents coming here? And, you know, it's, it's really interesting um, to write a story about Asian immigrants undergoing this post-immigrant experience, because even though Dago and Ming and James are growing up, they're going to carry whatever legacy they have into a life that's fully American at this point, they're surrounded by a culture that may not see them as assimilated. The culture that they live in may look at them and still see them as foreigners. And it's one of the fascinating things about being an Asian American person. I tried to describe that in the book, the idea that uh, you are seen as one thing and you feel another thing. So in the first half of the book, the characters interact with each other, and they're their own community, and they see each other and their flaws and their strengths as a community, pretty in a benign way ignored by the town where they live. In the second half of the book, though, after Leo's death, the town becomes, for various reasons, highly aware of this family. In fact, it goes viral online. You know, the story of the family goes viral. And all of a sudden, they become these Asian immigrants that are seen by others in a certain way. The brothers aren't the only characters, obviously. There is a world around them. There are a lot of women who are very interesting and very smart and a little conflicted because humanity. But there's also a dog called yes. Alf. <laughs> And we need to talk about Alf for a second because and we're, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to reveal all of what happens to Alf because he has a bigger role in this book than most dogs have. <laughs> <laughs> Alf has his own adventures. Alf he does. lives his own life. I should say that Alf entered the book because I was interested in dogs for a lot of reasons. One was that once my father had told me about a family that named their children after dogs, big dog, second dog, third dog, that was their nicknames. Chinese people do this because they want to protect the children from the gods that might see how precious they are. So they name the child after something kind of every day. So doggo means big dog. And then Ming and James are second and third dog. Anyway, they have their own dog, <laughs> of course. And Alf is a dog that 
I actually know. He's a French bulldog, just like in the book, and he lives in Paris, and his name is really Elf. And I happened to be, you know, traveling in the summer, and I met Elf and thought, this is the dog. This dog has to be in my book. And Elf has a wonderful personality in real life that I just instantly wanted to put into the book. He's always running off. He's, I mean, I don't know if he's really running off in real life, but in the book, he has such a strong personality that he's having adventures all the time of his own. He has, he has secrets. Elf, like all the other characters in the family, has secrets. One of the things about the book that I'm truly interested in is the secret side of people's lives. And Elf is, is sort of an illustration of that. Did anything surprise you while you were writing Family Chow? Well, I mean, for example, with Elf, there was a moment when one of the characters looks at Elf and thinks, where has Elf been? Only Elf knows where Elf's been, but he can't tell me. And that was something that occurred to me when I was writing. I thought, wow, this is so interesting about pets. Pets could have another family. Pets could be off living the high life, but not telling you about it. So, you know, just small thoughts like that did pop into my mind as I was writing this book more readily than in other experiences I've had as a writer. And I think it's because I really tried to keep myself feeling as loose as possible so that I could let in, you know, the liveliness and humor that really signify this family. So there's a word in Chinese, which means like hot and noisy. And I want, this was one of my mother's favorite words. I really wanted to put this into the book in some way. So there are a lot of scenes that are very real now. But the whole point of scenes like that is that things have to happen that surprise you. You know, things have to just take place as if they would in real life. It, Alf was a huge help with that because he's so independent. You know, just letting him do what he would do was very useful. And then just letting myself imagine these characters was useful. They were very much the kind of characters who just do what they're going to do and don't warn me. Who was the first character to show up? Oh, Leo, for sure, was the first character. Back in 2005, I wrote 100 pages about a family that was in certain ways similar to this family. But the one character who's very similar was the Leo character, who at the time was named Big Peter. Big Chow is his name now. He's just a, a very difficult, very but very charismatic guy, very funny guy who does bad things and is not a responsible person to a lot of the people who depend on him. That's that's Leo. Yeah, he, he was he was the first. So Dostoevsky sort of notoriously always intended to write a sequel to the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that more than I expected. I mean, the book, The Brothers Karamazov does not resolve, and neither does my book. Mm -hmm. um, and I've often thought about this, this idea that James would grow up to become a different person than he is. At the very beginning of my novel, uh, they, they have their fortunes told by a monk, which is actually something that happened to me when I was a child and visited my grandmother's temple. And I was told a lot of things about myself at that time that didn't appear to be true at all. Not at all. I was 19 and I was a very sort of clueless, confused 19, very young for my age. And I remembered that. And I gave James a similar fortune, you know, a fortune that just baffles him. But it occurred to me that it would be fun to follow him into that fortune and to see what happened to him. Let's leave the door open, please, because honestly, okay. I think there could be a second book. I'm very fond of these brothers. I'm very, very fond of these brothers. And I would like to see what happens. So I'm going to put in a request for maybe sometime you might get around to writing a sequel. <laughs> that would be fun. 
That would be really fun. Can we talk about your literary influences for a second? Who are some of the writers you go back to? I mean, you've been doing this for more than a minute. Well, for every book, I have a different fixation. I don't really have one favorite book, but I like a lot of different kinds of work. But, you know, with this book, aside from the Brothers Karamazov, I think I was really actually quite influenced by Philip Roth. He's not exactly having a day in the sun at the moment as a writer, but he is also the child of immigrants. And he is one of a generation of Jewish writers after World War II who I've always been quite interested in. His books can be like very sort of more straightforward. Um, and they can also be Dionysian and very sort of off color and over the top, very funny. I was interested in the way he uses speech. There's a lot of monologuing in his work. There's ranting. There's a lot of humor. And I was really sort of interested in that when I was writing this because I realized that the general immigrant novel is a sober, serious, sometimes tragic book about losses that happen to people who have great hopes. And that what I was interested in, in writing a post-immigrant novel, is a book about people who aren't quiet, who don't suffer quietly. The immigrants in my book suffer noisily. And I wanted to make that clear in the way they speak to each other. They yell, they curse, you know, they are funny. And that was a lot the way my family was. We did not suffer silently. There were things we wouldn't talk about. There were some deep, dark places that we never went verbally, but we talked a lot. And I wanted to write an immigrant novel that was a noisy book. The chows really take up space and it's exciting yeah. to read. They take up yeah. space. They really it's, do. It's good. It's really good. Lan Samantha Chang, thank you so much. The Family Chow is out now. It is our February book club pick, and I'm going to come join us in March for the book club event. It's going to be really excellent. It was so great being on the show. We're doing our book club discussion with Lan Samantha Chang in March. Check BN.com for details. But maybe you want to look at Karamazov before you join that conversation. It is time for your TBR Top Off this week. Hello, everybody. My name is James. We are coming to you from our Northville Barnes & Noble store in cold, cold Michigan, where we are oh. nice, warm, and cozy. Margie's here with me. Hi, Margie. Hi, Margie. <laughs> and we have uh, three books to recommend to you on our TBR Top Off. Three books that you can add to your to-be-read list that are available in paperback that you may have missed. And we have some great recommendations for you today based off The Family Chow and the interview you just heard with Lance Samantha Chang. We're excited about that being our book club selection for the month of February. We love a literary mystery. Mm -hmm. a great category. Margie, what do you got for us this week? Well, the first one that I have is something that's very special because it is set in Michigan, which I always love. It is called The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. It is by Anissa Gray. This one is about the Butler sisters, Althea, Lillian, and Viola. They live in small town, Michigan. They were basically the only African-American family in their small town. After their mother dies, Althea, the oldest, be basically becomes the matriarch at the tender age of 12 and kind of becomes responsible for bringing up her other two sisters and her younger brother. As they get older, 
Althea and her husband Proctor live in the house that Althea grew up in. They are pillars of the community. They are community organizers. They help with relief for people that aren't doing so great in the economy. But then they get arrested for fraud. They have been defrauding their community and the federal government through some false charities. And nobody can figure out why in the world they would have done it. In the aftermath, the other two sisters, Lillian and Viola, have to come together to not only try to figure out what their family is going to do going forward, but also to take care of Althea and Proctor's twins, whose names are Kim and Baby V. And they have their own secrets going too. This is a great read about how family members can hurt each other, but always love each other and never want to see each other but always want to be in each other's lives, <laughs> you know, that back and forth kind of thing um, that almost kind of basically defines family. I highly, highly recommend this one. It was just gripping. And again, that is The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls by Anissa Gray. Love it. The other one I have is a bit different. It is called The Great Offshore Grounds. It's by Vanessa Veselka. So many books that are about families are about them coming together after a particular big life-changing event. And I think this one is so interesting because even though this is a novel about a family, the four of them don't spend a lot of time together on, on the page, but they are always together in each other's thoughts and ruminations. This is about Kirsten, Livy, Cheyenne, and Essex. Kirsten is the mother. Livy and Cheyenne are actually half-sisters. Kirsten gave birth to one of them, but they don't know which one. The other one was born to a different woman. They're born like right on the same day from the same father with two different women, and they don't know who the other woman is. When their father, who abandoned them basically, gets remarried, he gives them the name of the other woman, and now they have to decide what they're going to do about it. Mm. Livy, Essex, and Cheyenne are all really different people, and they go about trying to figure out how to move on with this information in very, very different ways. So they kind of split up, but in the end, all of them are on a quest, and they're on a quest for freedom, to find themselves, to find love, to find meaning. And they realize that a lot of the important parts are always right in front of them in their family. And that is The Great Offshore Grounds by Vanessa Veselka. You know, I'm picking up on the theme of the family struggles, but also how food brings us together. And while our book this week, The Family Chow, was set in Wisconsin, and here we are in Michigan, another snow state is Minnesota. And that's where my book comes from. What We Hunger For is a collection of 14 different writers who come from refugee and immigrant families. And they write about food and family and their traditions in this collection of essays. And so as they've moved to the United States and ended up in Minnesota, some of them are experiencing a very different climate than they would have back home. They're shopping at local grocery stores, corner stores, eating at local restaurants, and sometimes trying different foods for the first time. But at the same time, sharing these traditions with their friends and their neighbors, and doing all of that in Minnesota. So it's a beautiful collection of stories from refugees and immigrants from Algeria, Thailand, Uganda, and many more, 14 all together. And they are stories that will stick with you in this gorgeous little paperback. 
that is edited by Shun Young Shin, and it's called What We Hunger For, and that's available now at your local Barnes & Noble. That so, one sounds so good. I haven't heard that one yet. Thank you. We're excited to recommend books to you at your local Barnes & Noble. Stop in and talk to a bookseller today. Get your own personal recommendation. We love recommending books. Just Actually, just mm-hmm. yesterday, a young lady came up to me and said, can somebody recommend a book to me? And Margie was standing right there, and I was like, oh, here we go. Let's, we're off to the races. <laughs> My favorite question. You need like 20 books, right? That's what you need. (laughs) We got lots of those. Thanks for listening to uh, your TBR Top Off here on the Port Over Barnes & Noble podcast. My name is James. You can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Book Brain. Thanks for listening, everybody. Happy reading. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.